wonderful morning we've had so far today. When something wonderful happens to you, such as the Pesach celebrating the birth of their son, and we'll get to celebrate another couple of baby baptisms in, in a few weeks, it's worth throwing a party, isn't it? It's worth celebrating. What do we call such celebrations? We often call them blessings. But what is a blessing? One of my pastors in seminary uh, and professors, and actually one of my uh, mentors, Dr. Edmund Clowney, who's gone to be with the Lord, defines blessing in this way. The pronouncement of God's favor. Blessing is the pronouncement of God's favor. I want to key in on that phrase, God's favor. What if you don't understand God? If you don't understand God and God's favor, then you're going to misunderstand blessings as well. In other words, if you've drifted from God, or the presence of God is no longer near to you or close in your mind, or as a society, which is relevant in our day, if the awareness of God has faded from your life, then so will the understanding and awareness of God's blessings. I'm thinking of this as the unenlightened view of blessings. You might have the common tendency of focusing on the gift and not on the giver. And this is cute for a toddler. It's an embarrassment for an adult, and it's unexcusable for a Christian. Another unenlightened tendency that you might have is the tendency to forget to be thankful. There's a whole parable in the New Testament about ten persons who were healed and only one who came back to give thanks. And with email and texting, thank you letters seem to have gone by the wayside, but I think we're losing more than thank you letters. I think we're losing thank yous. The discipline of being thankful and expressing thanks. The Bible warns that the sin of ingratitude is akin to idolatry. That's an unenlightened approach to blessing. And this final unenlightened approach is something that uh, actually Will Bausch and I were talking about. I heard, I heard Will talking about this yesterday, the, 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 the attempt to correct the, the, the vacuum of gratitude on our society by simply being grateful to no one in particular, to the universe. Just to be thankful because... Because Will's an English teacher, he called this absurd. I thought, hmm, wow, that's deep. It is absurd to be thankful to no one in particular just because. It is absolutely an unenlightened approach to blessing. In particular, it is an even grosser form of idolatry than forgetting to give thanks because you're acting as if there's no giver or you don't know his name. And that takes every single gift that God gives and takes them in vain. It breaks the law. It breaks the very back of the law of God. 
So it seems our awareness of God is directly connected to our understanding and blessing, and it does also seem that not only society, but Christians, and even you this morning, all too often approach blessing in an unenlightened manner. But thankfully, there's more to the story. Another theologian, I have not met this individual, Joyce Baldwin, she defines blessing in light of this skewed sinfulness that I've described, the the unenlightened character of mankind. Here's Dr. Baldwin's definition of blessing. She says, blessing is a word that sums up God's great design for the lost to be restored. God's great design for the lost to be restored. I like this definition because it includes in its very definition of blessing, God's plan to overcome our inherent sinful resistance to recognizing the blessings that he gives. She says blessing sums up, is summed up with this idea. God's design for the lost to be recovered in our understanding and appreciation of who he is and what he's done. God's designed to rescue us from our sinful self-centeredness. So the title of my sermon this morning is The Blessings of Abraham, and I want to look at three of them. And I, I will admit, I am absolutely overwhelmed this morning as I stand before you. The story of Abraham has me back in school, back to kindergarten, in preschool, learning my ABCs. And I am not only incredibly humbled to stand before you and attempt a second sermon about Abraham, but I am terrified in my pastor's heart that you are not prepared to hear that your knowledge of the Scriptures at a basic level is so thin that there will be so few handholds and hooks to hang the teaching from the Word this morning that you will profit but very little. But I know that God in His mercy and His grace speaks to His church, not where we, He wants us to be, but where we are. So using a poor, stammering preacher and far, far underprepared hearers, let us ask God to help us to hear what he has for us this morning. The blessings of Abraham. I have two texts. They both dip into two different, very small moments in Abraham's life. The first text I read last week, I'm going to read it again, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And the second text jumps ahead about 10 years in Abraham's life, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. So please read with me in your Bibles or listen, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. It is holy, infallible, and errant, and it is His Word to you today. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
and turning over to Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, that is, Jehovah, brought him outside and said, Abram, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. God, you have promised in your word to open our ears that we may hear wonderful things from your law. Open, your, open our eyes that we may see and believe the promises of your word. You've also promised that the seed which falls on good soil will bear fruit. But you've warned us that there are many other places where a seed can be scattered. So Lord, help us this morning to receive the seed of the word from Christ as he speaks to his church. Amen. The first blessing of Abraham is that when he was called by God, he was separated from all that was familiar, settled, and comfortable, as I pointed out last week. When it comes to Abraham's faith, he had to trust God for all of these new, unusual, and difficult things. There's a whole new existence in a place that he had never lived with people he didn't know and customs he didn't understand, enemies that were seeking to attack him. So we understand that in terms of faith, as we saw last week, but can you think of it perhaps in terms of blessing? The separation of Abram from his land, Ur of the Chaldees, from his family, his father Terah and his brother Nahor, even from that settled place in Haran, the midway point, as we saw, can you think of that, the separation, as a blessing, a huge blessing from God? You see, the nations in Genesis chapter 10 and in Genesis chapter 11 are literally hell-bent on building monuments and cities after their own name, for their own glory, with their own power. And while this may sound fun for a season, the end of this way of life is utter destruction and judgment. The holy God will completely consume and devour all who are opposed to him. In fact, Psalm 2 says he laughs at the nations. He, he, if it's possible... Scripture puts a sarcastic, mocking laugh in the mouth of God, saying, this idolatry and this rebellion I will utterly destroy. 
What a blessing to be separated from that. Abram was with his family, with his father and with his grandfather and all of his kindred, was fully engaged in the idolatry of his society, including the luxury, the relative luxury, for he came from a prosperous place. So in calling Abram, as he does in Genesis 12, the first text that I read, God is separating him, and this is a blessing. Now, whether this break from the past is simply something that Abram did once, or as we see in the story, it's something that he had to go through over and over and over again because he brought some of Ur the Chaldees with him. That old way of thinking, that father tradition. Now, we don't see Abram setting up altars to the moon god, which is Terah's native religion. The first thing he does in the land of Canaan is sets up altars to the living God. No, Abram's unclean break from the past shows up in other ways. Shows up in sinful, self-centered logic, in hesitating, halting faith, in helping God out here and there, in lying. What about you? What kind of break from the past has God blessed you with? Have you left Ur of the Chaldees? Are you on pilgrimage with God? Has he told you where he wants to go, whether that involves a physical move or not, is immaterial? You can even be raised in a Christian home and need to break from the past because your parents, though redeemed, are redeemed sinners. And as they have tried and prayed, hopefully, and and. To, to, to bring you up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They've, they've brought traditions from their past. I have as a father. My children are in counseling as a result. I'm laughing. You can laugh with me. We do this to our children. My father told me before I had kids, he says, parenting is the one job that you are fully prepared for once you are no longer needed. So, I'm ready. Bring on the grandkids. (laughs) One of the greatest blessings of God that you can receive is that you have been given citizenship in heaven. But that involves separating from your citizenship on earth. One of my favorite verses, it's, Not my life verse, it's the runner-up life verse, is Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. My wife was reading this this week in, in her devotional reading. She said, we talk a lot about living for Jesus and living for Christ. We forget that we have to die with Jesus and die for Christ first. That's the separation that is... Such a blessing. I don't want to live that way. I am tired of living in Ur of the Chaldees. I am tired of the halfway house of Haran. Of hearing the call of God and haltingly following it. Questioning it. Spurgeon on on this text puts it this way in his magnificent sermon. He says, the man who is called by grace 
lives in the same house, but not under the same motives as the rest of the people of the house. He is not ruled by the same desires of the house. He is so different from others that they very soon find him out. And as Ishmael mocked Isaac, so the sons of the world mock the children of the resurrection. That's what Spurgeon says. You see, it isn't all blessing being separated from your past because you will be mocked, you will be persecuted, you will be judged, you will be misunderstood. And sometimes you'll deserve it. We spent most of this year studying First Peter, which largely expounds your witness in a fallen world. And yet separate we must be. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Paul celebrates the great change which took place in his life. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy, Paul writes, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And writing to an entire church, Paul talks about the separation when he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And these great gospel words, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Seated before me now are people in all of these categories. But we are not defined by our old citizenship. We are defined by the kingdom of God. We are defined by the blood of Christ. We are defined by the separation that God has effected when God called us and we were running the other direction. He defines us and we are His. Separated by God is the first blessing of Abraham that we're highlighting this morning. The second blessing is this. When God called Abraham to go, God blessed him. There's a five-fold blessing here in Genesis 12. If you count them, there are five. But Abraham is going to discover, and it's even in the very blessing itself, it's God's blessing, God's favor, God's way. God lays claim to all five of these blessings. Listen again. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will enable you to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of me, through me. God's favor God's way. He's the owner. He's the one who summons. He's the one who calls. And so he gets to define the blessings. He's defined them in, in some, in, in summary fashion, in one, two, and three here. And then these blessings start to play out. Abram's like, wait a minute. I thought you said you were going to bless me. Oh, I did. But I didn't say I was going to bless you in your way. 
I'm going to bless you in my way. My blessing, my favor, my way. I like it when I go to some administrator's desk or a secretary or someone who, you know, handles all the business of the firm, which is to say all the garbage of the firm. Administrators are the unsung heroes in our operations. And on the, on the wall behind them, say, it says something like this. Poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. You know, there, there are things that need to be followed. And the administrator is in, a, is in a position of working out the health of that organization. And in this sense, just because the blessing doesn't match your thinking, doesn't mean God is all of a sudden your genie in a bottle where he comes at your beck and call and says, there, there, I understand. I was mistaken. Clearly, you should have had a child by now. Forgive me for falling behind I'll catch up for you. God's favor, God's way. There is no question that earthly abundance is in view with Abraham's blessing. And by that I mean riches, land, cattle, children, status. There is no question that that's in view. Material blessing is often scorned by some in the church as the antithesis of what God has in mind. And Abraham stands as a monument, rejecting that, if I may put it this way, Gnostic, otherworldly, shrunken faith. Material blessing is embedded in the very nature of God's blessing. Having said that, our materialistic, hedonistic, and self-centered lifestyle has taken the good, earthly gifts of God and perverted them to such an extent that we have fallen into the trap that if I don't get what I want, then God must not be blessing me. Material blessing, in fact, in the Bible sometimes is proof that God has departed. He's given you what you want, and you're left with the short end of the stick. God's favor, God's way. The time is up to him. The circumstances are up to him. The place is up to him. The all-important factor in the biblical definition of blessing is the favor of God. And this means he's going to bless you in his time and in his way. I want to illustrate this with one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 37. Here's how it begins. You don't have to turn there, but this is the first four verses of Psalm 37. A great text, a sacred poem for your meditation this afternoon as you rest on the Lord's day. Fret not yourself, Psalm 37 says, because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate or befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires 
of your heart. The context of this psalm as it begins is, do not be fretful or anxious or overly preoccupied or worried or jealous or coveting. Don't do any of that as you look out in your life and you look over the garden fence and you see the neighbor next door and how, grass is, how green his grass is. The context is of a person of faith, a man or woman of God, upset with God's blessing. And right out of the gate, the psalmist says, don't do that. Don't do that. God's favor, God's way. Instead, delight yourself in the Lord. Soon enough, you'll see how this plays out. And the psalm as a whole is just a magnificent sweep of the, of the contrast between the temporary earthly blessings of the wicked and the permanent blessings of the righteous and the redeemed. When it comes to Abraham, who's the patriarch we're learning about, we see him understanding this at points, but at other points, he seems to really struggle with this idea, God's favor, God's way. The promise in Genesis 12, 2 and 3 is unequivocal. Five times I went through them. God promises to bless Abraham, but it seems that these blessings revolve around two things which are decidedly and painfully absent for Abraham. The blessings revolve around a land and around offspring. Now, he's a sojourner in the land and has no share of it, and his wife is barren, and he is beyond years for childbearing as well. So all the blessings that he's promised concentrate in these two areas, and yet these two areas, it's a zero, it's a blank. In this way, I think it's helpful to remember Abraham is not just the father of all who believe, but he's the father of all who struggle to believe. And Genesis 12 is just the beginning of the story. Both of those struggles are found in Genesis 12, and it repeats in Genesis 13 and in Genesis 14, and as we'll see in a moment in Genesis 15, all the way to the end of Abram's life. And you know, each time God is patient with Abraham, he's patient with Sarah, and he reminds Abraham and Sarah of his promise. He restates the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He restates it throughout this account three, four, five, six, seven times. You'd think once would be enough, but no. God repeats it. So it's absolutely crucial that we recognize, biblically speaking, that the pronouncement of favor is in God's way. It isn't always obvious on the surface. And finally, we're just scratching the surface, as I mentioned in the beginning, but the third blessing, and I think the most important one. It really drives home the meaning of blessing. The greatest blessing a human being can receive is God himself. It's true that the favor of God includes the gifts that he gives. Land, posterity, long life, earthly riches. All these are blessings from God. But even greater than these things is the bond that a believer enjoys in friendship and in fellowship with God. And this is explicitly stated 
in my second passage, which is Genesis 15. Take a look at that, please. After these things, Genesis 15, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. And this next phrase, I like how it is in the King James and in the NIV, better than the ESV here. And I am your very great reward. I am your shield. Not your riches, not your land, not your children, not your crops, me. Here we have in the 15th chapter of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, a short and profound statement about the armor of God. The armor of God is God. The greatest blessing of God is God. The greatest reward God can give is to give you himself. This is important because the whole point of bringing Abram into Canaan in the first place was that God would make a people who would make his name known to the world so that having given himself to Abraham, Abraham could give God to everyone else, to the nations. Having separated Abram from the nations, Abram could bring God to the nations. God is the greatest blessing As one pastor has put it, God is the gospel. This is why the blessed son couldn't be Ishmael, who was a son of the flesh. But it had to be Isaac, the son of the promise. It was all about the plan of God to bring the fallen sons of Adam back to their holy fellowship and friendship with their creator. Having been expelled from the garden and separated from God, And having lost God, God chose Abraham in order to bring man back to God through a son of Abraham, the son of the promise. So what God says in Genesis 15, verse 1, I am your shield, fear not, your reward shall be very great, is a renewal of the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That God would send, not judgment, but a Savior in the form of the seed of the woman. Now, Abraham doesn't go with this right away. He struggles in, in our text. He says, uh, but, but Lord, I still don't get it. And God doesn't smack him down. He doesn't punish Abraham. He's patient. And he, he takes him by the hand, as it were, and he says, Abraham. Come here, buddy. Come on. Look up to the heavens. Tell me what you see. You see those stars? Count them if you can. He gives him a visual aid. That's how good God is to Abram. The God who created the stars of the heavens would see to the minor problem, relatively speaking, of a barren wife. And as Abraham looked on the heavens with the eye of faith, somehow he saw the glory of the Lord. So then we find one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, fifteen, verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and it is counted to him as righteousness. What does this mean? It means that 
not only did he believe that God would do what God said, but in this moment, when Abram received God's promise as sufficient, he believed that God was enough. That God himself was enough. Abram's justification, which is the technical term for being credited with righteousness by God, Abram's justification by faith is him saying, God is enough. I need nothing else. I need no one else. And I need not see it with my own eyes. God is enough for me. This is the faith that is credited as righteousness. This is the faith that can say with Jesus, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is the faith that says the good news of the gospel is God. God has a plan for the world that was not, th- that was not thwarted by the entrance of sin. God has power over evil, which can bring life from the dead and beauty from the ashes of your life. Salvation is not the end of the program, but the beginning and the means by which you are restored to friendship, fellowship, and partnership with God in the world. God is the good news. This is the message of the whole Bible, and I'm reading the Psalms and my devotions And I've noticed it, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the blessing. Another one that I love, I just read it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And a favorite is Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. This also helps explain why Abram is told that those who curse him, God will curse. Because Abraham's mission is to bring the nations which have gone far from God, which are cursing God, his mission is to bring them back to God. And if you curse this very solution for your sin-sick soul, you will be cursed. And that curse may take many different forms. But do not trifle with a saving, loving, merciful God. It also explains that what's going to be so great about Abraham's name. What's great about Abraham's name is that in him or in his son, seed, which the New Testament takes pains to emphasize is singular, So there is a son of Abram in whom all the nations will find their way back to God. In the the language of Revelation, every tribe and every tongue and every nation will gather around the throne and worship God through this seed or son of Abraham. His name is Jesus. I mentioned in the beginning of my sermon the blessing of separation of all that is familiar and comfortable and settled. We've been thinking about this now for two weeks. Abraham isn't the only one, though, who has experienced the blessing of separation. You see, Abram's greater son, Jesus, was wholly harmless and undefiled, separated from sinners. That's what the virgin birth is. It's proof that, that Jesus was, was clothed in human flesh, but not in a human nature. 
And so he was able, is able, to redeem those of us who are under the curse because he is a new Adam. He's the forerunner of a new humanity. Kind of like Abraham is. And because Jesus was separated from sin, he can help sinners. And isn't this what you want with your life? I know I've spoken to to many of you, and, and I know all of you have this thought at some point in your life, even the very young. What does God want me to do with my life? Why am I on the planet? What am I here for? And the answer is, you were here to be separated from sin and sinners and the citizenship that you called home, that you might be a blessing and an instrument of God in a lost and dying world, in some important place, in some sphere of our beautiful world. So as I close, let me end with these challenges. Are you separated from the world to the Lord? You know, the baptism of Caleb and your baptism, whenever it took place, whether as a child or as an adult, is a cleaving, cutting, separating ordinance. It's, it's the, f- the fulfillment of circumcision. It's a watery scissor that cuts you off from the old life that you lived. Now, you need to believe the baptism that was applied to you whenever it was applied to you. You don't need another baptism. You need to renew your faith in the God who made promises to you in your baptism, who called you out of your old life, and who has sent you to himself to use you in this world until he calls you home. Believe the promises of God and be separated from the world. I love this. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? You're going back to the pig troughs. You're going back to the old, the old things that you've died to when you sin in these ways, whether it's through anger or lust or stealing or lying or disgracing yourself or your parents or your children, dishonoring God. And relatedly, how are you doing with contentment at your circumstances? Remember God's gifts, God's favor, God's way. I love the prayer of Psalm 16. The boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. David was harried and harassed most of his life. And yet he looked around at this small square of the earth as he was running from King Saul. And again and again he confessed, God is good. God is good. How are you doing with contentment? With coveting? Are you, are you fine with God's provision? Are you resting in His grace? Psalm 116, I shared with a friend recently, God's bounty is sufficient. He calls me to re-enter the rest of His bounty in contentment and faith. And finally, what is the greatest gift you have? Are you looking forward in heaven to seeing loved ones, to being done with sickness, to having old wounds healed, a broken heart mended, no more tears, no more loss, No more hardships. Those are all great blessings of heaven. But the greatest blessing of heaven and the greatest blessing on earth is God. And it's a mark of a mature Christian who leaves the gifts of God for God himself. 
And I'm afraid that in the West, and particularly in America and in suburban southern New Jersey, we are fixated on the gifts of God and we're defining our religion by the gifts that God gives and not by the giver of those gifts. And I'm as guilty as this as all of us. The greatest gift is God. Jesus asks this rhetorical question, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? And the answer is nothing. Nothing is more important than your soul, which is another way of saying the greatest attainment of human existence, what the philosophers call man's highest good, the the summum bonum, the best thing in the world, is friendship with God, union and communion, not just in glory, but now, today, by faith, the blessing of Abraham. Amen. Father, as we end our time in the scriptures this morning, please take the words which have been spoken and the intentions which you, Lord, have heard because you know the secrets of every heart and cause them to grow. And may they be true. And where there has been unbelief and resistance to your advances, Holy Spirit, break it down. And may this be a day of new birth, new faith for the unbeliever, of renewed faith for the wayward, lost, and wandering sheep, renewed faith in the blessings of Abraham. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.